Well, hello everybody. It's Jean Nathan and it is Crosstown Conversations. And we are going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Um, I certainly didn't know all this insanity in Charlottesville was going to happen or else I would have focused in on that. And I'm not as fast as some of those cable shows that flip on a dime with the latest breaking news. But suffice it to say that I think it's time to fire President Trump. Let's fire that guy. Get him out of there. It's too much already. Enough. But we are going to talk more about flooding and landscaping today and and what we all as citizens can do. That was kind of the theme of last week's show. And um, today I kind of want to drill down into what does that mean uh, more specifically in terms of what you can actually do on your property. And I've got a couple experts here who are going to help us with this subject. We're going to start with um, Austin Allen. He's a professor at uh, LSU in landscape architecture. And I, I put Austin on the line specifically for identifying the kinds of things that we can do that don't cost a lot of money or require a lot of sophisticated labor. Because, you know, we not all of us have the access to um, landscape experts like you, Austin. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. I, I, I'm enjoying uh, having a chance to talk about all this. Thank yeah, you. it's um, you know, we all have been kind of talking about this now for some time, but with this recent storm, the urgency for slowing up the surge of water—that's what it's all about—slowing up the surge of water to the pumping stations because they can only handle so much, as they say. And uh, I think it's an inch the first hour and a half an inch every hour after that. Well, when you get eight, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten inches in an hour, then it just plain uh, can't handle it. So how do we slow it up? Well, um, and also how do we um, make sure that the lines between our blocks and the pumping station are not blocked with a lot of garbage because this is another part of the problem. Somebody teasingly told me, but they were actually being honest and saying, you know, you can find everything from Mardi Gras beads and plush toys in the sewer line. So um, not to mention people, you know, blowing their leaves into it. So there are things that we should not do also. But um, let's talk about, Austin, let's say you have an average, um, you know, a lot of people just have a, a little front yard. Um, or they may have a little backyard, but they don't have, like, you know, estates. What what can somebody do with the limited amount of of land available that can, can absorb water and help slow the drainage of water into the system? Well, one of the things that we're learning is that, you know, we don't have to do everything as just grass lawns as we know it. There are, and if you think about it, we're in an area where that's not what grows naturally here. You actually have a chance to do something when they call rain gardens or bioswells, which is, you know, a kind of, you know, small ravine kind of thing where you're going down a foot, two feet, three feet, depending on the size and uh, space that you're using, and kind of ponding on the ground, you know, with uh, the right appropriate plants because you don't want to create places where mosquitoes will just hang out. 
But you want to be able, just like you said, to slow the water down for that first hour of particularly a major storm event. And so, that's what rain gardens will do. Okay, so let's let's um, let, let's drill down on that a little bit. So, um, you know, somebody can go in on the uh, internet and, uh, of course, find this. But um, I, mm. I've seen a lot of these rain gardens, and I guess I don't know what the difference between a rain garden and a swale is. But I've seen, uh, for, for example, in the Holy Cross neighborhood, that's an area where a lot of people um, really kind of converged after the storm to help um, change the way people live. And so there was a lot of work on putting in. Um, all the various ways that you can absorb more sun and and uh, and and um, try to gather the rain and I've, so I've seen what they look like but I don't know how you make them so uh, you know what's first of all what's the difference between a rain garden and a swale and then secondly literally how do you make them well I, I think part of it is in the naming uh, there are you know, uh, specific differences in the way the land is shaped when you think about a swell, usually talking something a little bit larger in terms of, of, of the size. And it's basically that indentation which swells and directs the water in a particular kind of way. And it is, you know, um, also accompanied by, you know, certain plants that do well underwater you know a lot a lot of times and there's so many nurseries now can give you such an assortment of flowering things or shrubs and the like but the the rain garden is just i think a lot more of a a kind of uh ecology that happens within those kind of spaces and usually you're thinking of of them in a smaller context so you might have a couple of of trees that grow, you know, uh, like a, a two, you know, uh, black tupelos or uh, cypress trees or other things that grow in that that garden, as well as shrubs and the like. And it's meant to be, you know, a more uh, comprehensive landscape. I think when people talk rain gardens, what what often was a problem is people would duplicate things from other areas and weren't paying attention to the soils which we have in Louisiana. So I think you have to pay attention to soils. Sometimes you have at the bottom of rain gardens and and swells, you have a little bit of gravel, you know, that helps in the filtration of the water and kind of making sure you don't end up with puddles for mosquitoes. Okay, so let me just um, uh, understand. Uh, so let's say I have more than just that little front yard. Let's say I have a little bit of a side yard. And so yeah. I would, like, literally dig uh, a, a hole, um, let's say um, lengthwise, maybe six feet or something, and maybe about um, two two to three feet deep, you said. Is that is that kind uh, of? Probably in, the, uh, in one home range you want to be more like one to two feet you okay. know if you had a huge lot you would start talking three feet you okay. know a two to three okay. and it's all in that scale of uh, of size one of, one of the problems that i think we're facing when we talk about what can you do as the individual it's almost a better way to think of it is what can we do as a block i think the block 
is the kind of base division of these kinds of um, strategies, you know, so that it's something you may think about with your neighbor. For instance, the way the drainage works in the front of, of many a house, you know, is that there is a, a really a bias well that the city has already dug to run that water into the, you know, storm drain system that you could do some things to even slow water there by planting shrubs and trees in those swells without blocking them. It's just that those trees, in particular trees and swells, you know, love to drink that water up, you know, before it even gets, you know, where it's going in terms of that. And, and I think we have to think of this as two strategies that are going on. You want to slow down for the first hour, and you want your soil to act as a sponge for that first hour. It's not just run the water out as fast as you can. It's run the water out slower and let some of it get absorbed into your soil so you don't have what we call subsidence or the ground shrinking down as, as we go through, you know, one year to the next to the next. Hey Austin, how bad is the subsidence uh, issue? I, I, I've really, I, I've heard about it only sketchily over the years, and of course, I heard a lot more about it over the past week. But uh, explain to me what's going on with the subsidence, and um, I, I know I must be a little bit loony to s- suggest this, but I keep wondering about all those great big buildings that we've built in Central City, and right. I know they're built on kind of a um, a mattress, so to speak, a big mattress underground yeah. to to hold them in place. But are you going to tell me that those big old buildings don't um, contribute to our subsidence? Well, uh, the, the, uh, absolutely. You have pressures that are coming from you know tall buildings, but they are actually, uh, for the most part, probably anchored into the next strata of uh, land that is under what I would just call a layer, a big layer of dirt and mud, which is anywhere from 20 to 60 feet. So what you have, if you've ever seen them build a new house in New Orleans or a new building, you'll see them drive these, looks like telephone poles. The piles, yeah. Yeah, the piling into the ground. Those are 40 feet, which is the average of 20 to 60 feet. And they are, of course, stabilizing this thing, floating on on that that mattress you talked about. And then if you run all the water out very quickly, like a sponge, it dries up, and you begin to see it. it. There's certain places you can go, and you will see where, you know, there's actually um um, you know, it looks like the soil has gone away from the foundation or something, and that, that, that's the impact of subsidence, you know, uh, where you see that the, you know, things are shrinking down. And it's one of the reasons people wanted the slow water was so that you get less of that effect of, of things shrinking down uh, and more of a slowing down of that whole process as we put more of a push on the soil up top, you know. 
if that makes sense. Sort of, kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, let, let me come back to um, the swale that I was trying to build. So let's okay. say I've got a little bit of a side yard and, um, you know, I don't know uh, what dimension to say, but let's say just kind of a typical um, side yard. Uh, let's imagine it's, I don't know what, 20 by 20 feet maybe or 20 by 40 feet. Um, yeah. So uh, let's say um, we're looking at uh, digging a hole. It's about, you know, one to two feet deep. And, and I, I said about six feet long. Does that make sense? Uh, I, you know, the, the beautiful thing about a rain garden vials, well, it could be the whole 40 feet long. But if you do it beautifully, then, you know, it's part of the aesthetic of the of the yard, you know, as opposed to, you know, uh, a ditch. You don't so, want to so create you're kinda, a ditch. You so want you, this nice, beautiful swell in the ground that just shows the way that the water actually can run off there in, in, a, in a kind of way that and what you plant in there should have the beauty that you want in the yard of flowering things. Like I said, and you can get the latest things, whether they're water lilies or whatever they are, depending on the amount of water that you have in there. Irises do well. And the others, you, you know, you can plant those things along this, and you'll, you can create a thing of beauty rather than just see it as, okay, this is just so I hit the, you know, requirements yeah. in terms of, yeah, I kind of, I kind of got that. Okay, so uh, what I'm kind of getting from you is the bigger the better, for one thing. So yes. um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, dig it up. But um, let, let, now let's go to those flowers. So um, what what kinds of you said you mentioned lilies and irises? I've never been able to grow irises because um, where I am, I'm just so much in the shade that uh, they just don't bloom. So that doesn't work for me. But what, what are some of the kinds of plants that you can uh, uh, plant in the swale that is going to like that water? I, I know you've got some other people coming on who are going to give you a rundown on plants. But, uh, you know, those, uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to think right offhand, but you've seen them. One of the biggest oh, things to do is to look at the wetlands, and you'll see such a variety of things uh, coming up. Some of them, like water hyacinth, are definitely invasive on one end, so you need to kind of keep keep um, keep a check on what you're doing. But on the other end, they're beautiful, you know, um, and, and, the, and it depends on how much water you want to hold and how long you want to hold the water. Okay. Well, you know, we actually have um, Susanna... Burley, yeah. who's the executive director of Sustaining Our Urban Landscape with us also, um, yeah. uh, a.k.a. Soul, NOLA. And um, yeah. she's here mainly to talk about uh, her tree planting that her organization is doing. But um, Susanna's got uh, a master's in uh, land architecture, too. So let's, Suzanne, uh, do you have any uh, suggestions on the? Now, the thing, of course, is to deal with the, the native plants that are common in this area. Absolutely. So that's another part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like Absolutely. what about those? Um, what do they call those? Um, those are they're not gladiolas. They look kind of like gladiolas, but they're big orange flowers. That oh, canna. Right, canna. What about canna? Yes, uh, canna, papyrus, pickerel weed, umbrella plant. Um, those are all great plants that absorb a lot of water and toxins. 
as well. Um, and then, then you can talk about your trees, too, like your bald cypress, of course, is the most famous one. Well, the thing about a bald cypress, I mean, I love cypress trees, and I'm thrilled to see what's happening all over the city. Um, they just started planting uh, cypress trees here in New Orleans really a couple decades ago, and now they're monstrous. They get big, those guys. So you've got to have a property that can accommodate a cypress. So uh, that's that's not for every yard, really. No, if you have a big neutral, I mean a big uh, right-of-way, which is that space between your sidewalk and street, um, if you have over four feet in that space, you could plant a cypress there, a bald cypress or a pond cypress. Um, river birch are also great trees for absorbing water. Anything whose natural habitat is where it would have a wet root system, like a creek bank, river bank, etc. River birch, I'm thinking also, um, I'm just thinking about a, a, a place that I have on a river and um, uh, Mimosa is another thing that I've, I've seen mm -hmm. along the riverbanks. And then, of course, all those various grasses. What about all the different kinds of grasses that grow along the uh, water's edges of rural? Yes. Yeah. Uh, sedges. Um, and if you are interested in planting a rain garden or a bioswale, it's great to go out and see the existing ones and see what plants they have in them. One of my favorites is at the Broadmoor Library, the Rosa Keller... Rosa F. Keller Library and Community <laughs> Wait, Center. Wait, I got to talk to. Hey, Austin. Yes. I don't know where you're walking to, but I'm I'm picking up your trail on the on the microphone. So. Oh, I'm sorry. That's sorry. all right. Go ahead. Um, so I, I suggest going to different landscapes to see how plants behave to see if you want those plants in your yard, and I love the rain garden designed by Spackman Moss at Michaels at the Broadmoor Library, the Rosa F. Keller Library. Right there at the intersection of Napoleon and Broad, right? Yes, yeah. the lowest spot in the, in the city. That is the lowest spot? It is. Oh, wow. Yes. And um, so they have a really simple plant palette. They have sweet bay magnolias, bald and pond cypress, and they have iris inside the rain garden, and I'm forgetting the other plants. But it's really beautiful, and it captures a tremendous amount of water and holds it until it can percolate back into the ground. That, and that's what we're talking about, basically. All right, well, besides swales and rain gardens, um, let's talk about what else we can do. And um, I think that, again, Susanna is the tree lady in town. You're sort of a Johnny Appleseed of, of <laughs> trees in New Orleans at the moment. And um, you're planting them. Your organization is actually going to neighborhoods and, and literally – I, I understand that your next round, you're going to plant about 600 trees? We are. Uh, we're going to plant 15-gallon and 30-gallon trees. So that's the pot size, which is how you um, measure a tree when you're ordering it. Uh, so our, we're working with three partner communities, Mid-City, Broadmoor, and Algiers, Algiers Point. And we're just sticking with these three communities right now because our strategy is to cluster trees in these areas until we can get a substantial tree canopy and actually start impacting street flooding, subsidence, air, water, and soil pollution. 
Um, and then community health. So I don't know what uh, your, the boundaries of Mid-City have always been a mystery to me because sometimes people say I live in Mid-City, but I, I really think myself as living in Treme. So I, I've got to ask you because one of the streets that has really been flooding terribly and has a neutral ground that is just barren and is begging for trees is Orleans Avenue on the Treme side mm -hmm. of, uh, of Broad. How about that? Yes, well, we did plant down there last year, so we're not um, completely steadfast with our boundaries because the water doesn't have any boundaries. So as long as we can keep continuing our clusters, we planted last year 190 trees. Um, so as long as we can keep expanding from those clusters and connecting them, then we're fine to plant, even if it's a little bit outside of the mid-city boundaries or the other neighborhoods. So... So you planted trees on Orleans? I we planted so, some on the right-of-way on Orleans. Oh, on the sides. Mm -hmm. Okay, and well, that must have been smaller trees like sweet magnolia or something? We planted some sweet bay magnolias around there, um, some red maples. I don't remember all the species in, in every spot that we planted. Yeah, yeah. But I know that Parks and Parkways was, had a plan to plan out some of the neutral grounds on Orleans. Well, uh, if they had a plan, <laughs> that's wonderful, but it hasn't happened. And I, I drive down Orleans constantly, and uh, it just uh, – it's, it's the, the thing about it is not just the flooding but the aesthetics. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a beautiful street architecturally, mm -hmm. and I think it's really deprived of uh, green because the neutral ground literally has nothing on it. I think they tried to plant some bushes there a few years ago, and um, maybe they didn't take or something, or they didn't get watered when it was drier than we than the spring we're having this year. But um, I sure would love to see some more green on Orleans Avenue, because they get flooded badly. Yeah, they do. Oh. And one thing I would love to say about Parks and Parkways is they're a great partner to us, and they're still working at 30% of the capacity that they had pre-Katrina. Of staffing, you mean? Budget and staffing. Budget and staffing, So, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. they're, people like to knock them, but they're, they do a really great job. They just have very limited resources. Yeah. So, um, Which I guess is why I can't, can't get them to come trim the oak trees that are impinging on my house right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, we do plant neutral ground trees as well. With the neutral ground trees, it's a little bit trickier because yeah. we are still a new organization. We're one year old. We don't have a water truck yet. So you, when you plant a tree... You need a water truck. You do because when you plant a tree... You've got to um, water it. You have to water it the first year two to three times a week unless it's raining like it is right now. Um, and so, like, we planted on Nunez Street in Algiers last year mm -hmm. on the neutral ground. We planted 10 30-gallon live oaks, and the neighborhood jerry-rigged their own water truck by putting rain barrels in the back of a pickup truck because they were that dedicated to getting – to reforesting the neutral ground. So if we can find folks like that to water the neutral ground, we can do it. It's just hard right now since we, we don't yet have the equipment to um, – to take care of neutral ground. I would like to see a picture of the barrels in the pickup truck. Send me a picture of that. I'll run it in our newsletter. Okay. But, um, yeah, maybe we're going to have to go to work on the companies that make those water trucks and see if we can get one donated to the city of New Orleans because I'm sure that they do a lot of business with the city, yeah. our city, and other cities. 
They have their own, but once again, it's just capacity. So you know, in terms of parking parkways. But yes. I mean, but what if you had one? Oh, I would love one. So I think that's that's a project, guys. We have to work on this. We uh -huh. have to get Sol Nola the. Um, uh, it's, let's see, the, it, that stands for um, sustaining, sustaining our urban our landscape, urban landscape yeah. and, and, and get them a uh, water truck so that they can plant even more trees, especially oh, yes. on the neutral grounds. Yes. Our, uh, so uh, on the trees, um, can people – there used to be a tree program some time ago that people could actually call and ask for trees, mm -hmm. but that's not what you do. No. Um, I think partially because of my landscape architecture background and, and also just understanding our great, great need for trees here. I want to see every single uh, tree survive. So I will assess every single application that we get, look at their right-of-way or their yard or their neutral ground and make sure that we're putting the right tree in the right spot. So I don't want to just like give them away, have somebody come pick up a tree, and you don't know if it's ever gotten planted, if it was planted in the right spot where it will actually survive. Um, and on that note, we also map all of our trees, and that helps keep us accountable. Like last year, all of our trees survived except for one that was run over by a car that oh. ran into a house. Oh, dear. But we wouldn't have known that without our mapping system. Mm -hmm. Is um, the map online? Can it is. It's on our website, which is solnola.org. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so it's just we have a new – the first staff member who we just hired a month ago. So it's just Scott, Meyer, and myself. Um, so we're trying to stay really tight with our mission and really tight with our how we deliver our programming. So um, the way we do it is people can – Canvas their neighborhoods and speaking to Austin's idea about plant or dealing with a whole block as a system. Um, the neighborhood ca uh, block captains, they will galvanize their immediate neighbors to plant their block and hopefully the adjacent blocks as well. Then uh, Seoul does all that's, – that's all they have to do is the community side, which, which is a lot. But then we hand select all the trees from the plant nurseries on the North Shore. We organize the planting day. We round up all the volunteers. And then we plant the trees with volunteer assistance on Saturdays from 10 to 1 um, between November and March. Mm -hmm. So that's how we do it. That's the, that's the only way we do it right now. Because mm -hmm. that's uh, the most effective way to make sure that the likelihood that the trees will survive um, yes. will do so. Yes. Yeah. What, what, um, what motivated you to get involved in this in the first place? Um, well, certainly my landscape architecture background. Also, I worked at Parks, uh, Parkway Partners, a nonprofit here in the city for four years, and I was the program director. And I ran a bunch of different programs, but I really was most interested in the um, planting trees. But because I was running so many programs, I didn't feel like I could do it well enough. To have the impact that you wanted to see. Right. Yeah. And so uh, after we lost 100,000 trees during Katrina. Uh, that was a staggering number. I heard that number from uh, one of your previous Shows I, I knew that we lost a lot. I had no idea it was that many. Yes, and so and that's on public and private property, or just public property. 
It's both. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But so that, because of that loss of tree canopy, the U.S. Forest Service declared us the most deforested city in the country. I, when I heard that, that was also startling to think of our city, which is so green, as being one of the most deforested. I, I, had, I had a hard time getting my arms around that, but I understand well, in terms of what we lost. Yes, and if you, we have a, um, a couple of photos under our reforestation program on the website, and these aerial photos are so telling. There's one of New Orleans, and then there's another one of Atlanta, and they're taken from the same scale from Google Earth. And um, we are just barren. I, people think that we're green. As compared with Atlanta? Yes. Oh, my God. And I it, think of Atlanta as being nothing but concrete. No, no. It's the most forested city in the country. Atlanta? Uh-huh. Wow. Um, look at the aerial. How did that happen? They've always been very forested um, and very committed to their trees. Hmm. Um, there, there's just a different consciousness around trees here. People are We probably take them for granted. Yes, and I think there's a fear around trees here, especially since Katrina, because we had trees falling. Mm -hmm. People, we also have much smaller lots. You know, we live at a different density than folks do in Atlanta. Um, But in here, we have to clean our own catch basins. You don't have to do that in every city. Mm. So, you know, people don't want to deal with the leaves. But if you weigh the pros and the cons, the pros being that a bald cypress for example, can drink 880 gallons of water in a day, that's huge. That was another number that I was uh, blown away by, yeah. how much a tree. Uh, so that, that also explains a little bit. You know, I live on Esplanade, mm-hmm. and uh, we have all those oak trees. And we actually planted trees in between the oak trees. So we have mm-hmm. these orchid trees and um, what's called redbud trees mm-hmm. in between. So we, we've got a lot of trees, and I guess – that's part of um, why we don't, you know, we're also high, higher ground. There. Yeah, Esplanade is a ridge, which makes it yeah. higher, mm-hmm. and, um, and higher ground during a storm is very helpful. But also, you have that, the double protection of the the canopy and then the understory. And then a lot of homes on Esplanade also have the ground cover. Yeah. So when you have those three layers, that's triple catching of water yeah. when the rain comes. Mm-hmm. Um, if the water just, if you have one tree on your block, like we have on my block, it hits the tree and the tree's canopy will capture a certain amount of the water and then it goes to the ground. Um, so Esplanade is great that way because it's got the overstory, the understory, and the ground cover. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. So generally speaking, as people look to improvements in their homes, they really should think hard and fast about um, what can they do on their uh, around their house, not just in and on their house, but around their house mm-hmm. to uh, build up this capacity to, uh, to absorb water. And besides which, it's beautiful and it, it, it makes it cooler. I have no doubt that um, it's cooler you know, around my house with all those trees than it is uh, in some places that don't have the trees. Oh, I yeah, to- yeah. totally don't get at all the whole lawn thing. That's uh, I just... I don't either. It's This is just not uh, a great city for it because we're so compact and so dense, um, and we have such environmental issues with stormwater. Um, so this fall, I, have a, I don't even have a catch basin on my street, and I've been told I will not get one in my lifetime. 
So uh, I have the one oak that was planted, live oak that was planted on the street before we bought the house, probably 20 years ago. And it's huge, but I'm planting three bald cypress in front of our house this year because I have to deal with it myself. Nobody's going to help me out. So I'm going to suck up as much water as I possibly can with trees. Besides the trees that you're putting out, where else can people get trees? Um, NOLA Project, uh, Tree Project, works with trees as well, and also disaster recovery. Um, they have a completely different model than us, um, but they do work all over the city. Um, this Parks and Parkways has giveaways. Um, there's other groups that do one-off tree plantings. You can also just go to a nursery and get a tree. Just if you plant one on the street, meaning on the right of way between street and sidewalk, just please don't plant anything smaller than a 15-gallon tree. And the reason for that is urban trees are, experience a lot of stress, like car doors hitting them and skateboards and uh, bicycles and dogs and, you know, all these different stressors. So the little tiny trees have a very hard time surviving that. And they also, um, you want to plant a tree on the street where you s know its form already. So a bigger tree, you can kind of gauge its form and pick the nicest one you can find. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, how, how about palms? My, my property is covered with them. I, I went a little crazy with Chinese fan palms. And um, and I didn't know that they had babies, and they're having they're having babies all over my yard, and so now I have a forest of Chinese fan palms. Mm -hmm. They seem to be very happy in this weather and getting bigger uh, constantly. But um, are they a good uh, absorber of water? Not really. Oh. Um, <laughs> and then the non-native palms, like the Chinese fan palm, and everything pretty much except for the pendo palm. Um, can freeze and die here. Yeah. And so I've you just had that experience. Yeah. yeah. So you just have to think about: Are you ready to pay the arborist x amount of dollars to remove to your dead palms when they bring freeze? In and put in new ones. Yeah. We um we've only lost our palms uh, once when we had a it was 1990 and we had this big uh, snowstorm that just came out of mm -hmm. nowhere. And uh, you can look out your window. It was a beautiful momentary sight to see all these palm fronds covered with snow, but it was not a good thing. Austin, yes. are you still there? Hey, listen, you think we can help her get a, a water truck? Do you think the university? Oh, absolutely. You know, she has been one of the most dedicated people I know for planting everything here in, in uh, New Orleans, and I really appreciate that. Uh, You've gone on to form your own nonprofit. I didn't Thank know you, this until I was watching the uh, city council meeting, and you did an excellent job. Of oh, thank talking you. Talking about things there, yeah. So I, I absolutely think that could be the case. And to plant more trees, we need it, you know. And and what was said, it, it's so true that people don't realize that we lost so much in terms of uh, tree. In, in that storm uh, and flooding, and that, that you know, we we have to gain that back. And if we're really going to seriously talk about tackling, you know, water issues, uh, the, the, there was another thing. There was a gentleman at that city council meeting, and he suggested that 60% of every block is rook, you know, in terms of 
uh, multiple roofs, you know, and that if we gave people uh, rain barrels like we do uh, trash uh, receptors, uh, what a what a different world it would be, you know. I, oh, yeah. I really like those kind of suggestions. Um, yes, and I have to say it's an honor to be on the radio with you, Austin, and I got to grad, no, I was finishing grad school the year that you started, so I am have always been sad that I didn't get to take one of your amazing classes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, with the compliments flying here, I think that we can um, <laughs> can uh, uh, focus our, our energy on uh, trying to help uh, help um, Susanna get that. Um, we got to get that water truck for her. That All right, LSU, cool. come through for me. Um, One thing I just wanted to add about deforestation is that a lot of folks are surprised when they hear about how many trees we've lost, and then especially when they look at the aerial view of New Orleans, especially compared to other cities of this size. Um, So the deforest, our trees here are really barometers of wealth and health. So you have the nice wealthy showcase streets like Esplanade and St. Charles and Ursulines that are just beautifully forested. I guess parts of Esplanade are wealthy. I don't know about my little stretch, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, as a whole they are. But then you go off, like if you look at the south side, I know I'm not supposed to say northeast, southwest, but on the south side of St. Claude, you have a lot more trees than on the north side. And you, if you overlaid the um, economic status of those neighborhoods, you would see the correlation between wealth and trees. And that's the case in all cities. It's really interesting. Hmm. So um, we're really, like in uh, Broadmoor this year, we're planting in subsection B, which is the poorest section of Broadmoor. And it really has no trees. It's just staggering. So it's, it's really exciting. That's a, a, another form of inequity. We see oh, yes. inequity in so many different places and ways. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I've, I, I've seen the same thing. Of, all, of course, you can go to very wealthy suburbs and see no trees, too. Yeah. I mean, that's, not, that's the other end of the uh, spectrum. Well, I think what uh, you're doing is great. And, um, and Austin, I really appreciate you um, uh, digging down, so to speak, with me on these swales and rain gardens no because I've seen them and I, I like them. I just don't know, you know, I haven't known how you actually do them. There must be um, a website, um, Austin, where people can go also uh, to to uh, get a little bit more guidance on that. Uh, there are hundreds, and uh, I, I'll leave that to Susan to talk about maybe some of the ones that are a little more accurate because I think that's the critical thing to really make sure for Louisiana you're doing the right uh, kind of combination of either soils or gravels or other things so that, uh, you know, you're not working against yourself. Yeah, that soil is a tricky thing. I have, I think, what they call clay soil. That's not the easiest soil to work with. And uh, I've planted a lot of things that I've, I've had die on me. Right down the front walk, I planted gardenias that didn't make it. Part of it is the sun. I mean, the sun is another, the other really big issue. Um, and then um, I planted uh, um, some uh, camellias, and they didn't do well. Again, partially sun, partially soil. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, the people in the nurseries, it's true. They really do. 
uh, know what they're doing, and they can help you. And so mm -hmm. maybe the most important advice is to tell people who want to try to do this. And I, I, it just seems like this is not that costly. That's going back to it this is. issue of right. what you can do that doesn't cost a lot of money. The swales is one thing, and the uh, rain gardens, and then um, you know, getting trees from some of the, the folks who are making trees available. Yes, ours are free. Um, so if you're in Mid-City, Broadmoor, Algiers, or Algiers Point, uh, you can get up to two trees for free, um, maybe more uh, depending on um, a case-by-case -case basis. And then folks outside those neighborhoods can still order trees from us and we can have them delivered to you and have them planted. It would, it, there would just be a fee associated. Good to know, because yes. I can do a little tree planting on Barrack Street behind us. We, we can use some trees back there because mm -hmm. uh, it, it tends to get a little bit floody there. Any last points? I've got to move on. I've got a lot to talk about with um, Stacy, who's coming up next, and she's going to talk about the architectural side of the city and the big film festival that's coming up. Thank you for having me. Last point. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. So much. Awesome. Oh you guys stay in touch with me. Any developments, let me know. We can put it in our newsletter and get it out. You know, we've got a, a little over 12,000 people that we communicate with through our newsletter so each much. week in addition to the radio show. Thank you, Susanna, and thank you, Austin, for what you guys do. All right. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Okay, Stacy, um, uh, pronounce your last name for me so I don't get it wrong. Fingston. Fingston is the head of um, a wonderful organization, the Louisiana Architectural Foundation. Foundation. Yes. And um, she launched last year, very successfully for her first year, it was amazing, a new festival of films on architecture. And, you know, we're all, I, I believe that if you live in New Orleans, um, uh, you're here for a reason. And one of those reasons is landscape, architecture, it is the beauty of the city. That's what captivates us and keeps us here. And so um, looking at, you know, uh, our architecture, both our old architecture as well as new architecture, to get ideas, a, a, a great fun way to get those ideas is to, is to go to these films that, that Stacy pulls together. And they're always fascinating. So Stacy, give me the particulars, first of all, the dates, the place, and then let's dig into some of these films. Okay, wonderful. Well, it's coming up next weekend. Uh, we kick off on August 24th, Thursday night, and that'll be our opening night at the Contemporary Art Center. Uh, the party will be 5.30 to 7, and then our feature film is going to be Getting Frank Gary. We'll talk about that film uh, today. And then Friday through Sunday, August 25th through 27th, we will be... Um, Screening films at the Broad Theater. We're very excited to be back at the Broad, and the Broad's going to be our main venue. So Hopefully we, it doesn't flood I, Well, we have a backup plan. Uh, we have a backup okay. plan. If, if we are flooded at the Broad, we are going to do everything at the CAC. Okay. And, and my, the idea is kind of like the umbrella plan. You know, if we have your umbrella, it doesn't rain. So I'm hoping if we have our plan in place, then the Broad is going to be able to right. uh, exactly. provide if for us. ready for it, it won't happen. Yes, and I'm glad that we're going to be at the Broad, too, because they lost, you know, lost a lot of equipment. It was very expensive. Oh, two floods they, they did. Oh, I didn't and uh, two floods within two weeks at the Broad. So we're happy to be rough. there. We hope to have a successful fe uh, festival uh, to help them out a little bit. And uh, we do have a very special premiere on Friday night at 7 p.m. We are going to be part of NOMA's Friday night events. We'll be featuring one of our local 
uh, legendary modernist architects Albert Ledner here. And that film is, uh, filmmaker is his daughter, Catherine. And so that'll be the special film. That'll be free for members at NOMA. Uh, if you're not a member of NOMA, then it'll be $12 at the door, and that includes all the Friday night things, uh, music and everything, and then the film at 7. So, so I, I don't know uh, anything about Albert Ledner, believe it or not, and um, so I need you to uh, give me a little skinny on him. Sure. Um, he's done a lot of homes here in New Orleans, uh, very modern, a lot on Park Island. Uh, the Galatoire oh, House, okay. you may be familiar with. Oh, yeah. It's what they call the ashtray house, and sure. it literally has a lot of little ashtrays along <laughs> lining, you know, as a decorative element. Uh, those are a few. And then um, the one in this um, on our cover for uh, the film is uh, the Maritime Union uh, building in New York City. So he also did a few prominent buildings in New York City, but a lot of homes. A lot of uh, really great modernist homes here. And that's what I like about Albert Ledner and us getting the chance to tell his story and kind of give him his 15 minutes because uh, he's still practicing at the young age of 93. Wow. He's still in his workshop. Uh, very vibrant guy, great guy, uh, very talented. And yes, he's still doing things. He's still actually overseeing a renovation of one of his um, a former church, uh, the Unitarian Church, now turning into a home over in the Garden District, and he's overseeing that as well. So he's active still, and I think that's, that's how you live till 93. Right. Uh, so I'm happy that we are going to be featuring this film uh, as part of the festival because we not only want to bring the stories of what's going on in the world of architecture, but we also want to showcase our own here in Louisiana. Absolutely. And, uh, and we also, in, in conjunction with uh, the festival, we are opening up tomorrow night at Tulane University, and this is free, an exhibition opening reception. Uh, tomorrow night, Thursday, August 17th from 5 to 8 at the Southeastern Architecture Archive, and that's at 6801 Ferret Street, uh, floor 300, and that'll be an uh, exhibition of Albert's work in conjunction with the film festival. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like Albert month is August. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, let's, let's uh, do a little bit of a rundown here on the films that are coming. Um, tell me, let's start off with, um, I don't know, one of the more outlandish ones. One of the more outlandish ones. Um, let's see, like a little controversial. Um, I would say, you know, it's a design film. We're an architecture and design film uh, festival. And uh, a little more provocative is probably going to be the happy film. It uh, showcases a designer called Stefan Seigmeister, who is known for his covers of Rolling Stone and Jay-Z, very hip-hop, uh, almost like a demigod uh, in the graphic design world. And what I like about it and edgy about it is it kind of goes through his um, dealing with depression and dealing with the fame and everything that he has uh, come to now in the career of, like, early 50s is, I think, his age. And what does he do next, you know? And I think that's what a lot of people face when they have been successful and they're very creative on dealing with that and what does he want to accomplish. And um, and it goes through, you know, as a creative, a lot of creative people go through is, is depression. But it's, you know, you go to, you in the film, he's traveling, I think, to Tibet, and he's doing yoga, and he's a part of a retreat. And then you also find where he's trying drugs. He's trying all these different, he's almost like a design experiment himself. <laughs> but it's also visually really fun and because a graphic designer is behind it. Uh, so that, I would say that's probably one of the more provocative films. Um, 
Another one I think is a very important film and very interesting is The Destruction of Memory. So we're going to go to the Middle East here, and we're going to talk about the last hundred years of how in order to wipe out a, a civilization, if you're going to war with them, you, you attack them through their culture, through their landmarks. You get to them by, you know, bombing their places of worship, you know, and that's how you get to their psyche. And uh, so that's going to, you know, touch on currently ISIS and, um, and what, you know, different organizations are trying to do over there to document, to, you know, make sure they're prepared and which landmarks may be more threatened than others so uh, we can preserve those for future generations. So that's another really great one. So that is both a identification of the landmarks, uh, but then what do they do to try to protect them? Well, they're, they're doing uh, a lot of with technology where they're able to use this laser technology and with computer and, uh, you know, be able to recreate blueprints of some of these wonderful mosques and buildings over there so then they have the blueprints uh, if, if it is uh, demolished. So we're going to do a really important panel discussion after that. That's going to be on Sunday at 1 o'clock, and we're going to have uh, John Stubbs, uh, who is the head of the Historic Preservation Department at Tulane, who is also a board member of the World Monuments Fund. We're going to have Tess Davis, who is the executive director of Cultural Antiquities Coalition, and she's actually part of a group that goes out uh, after uh, the people that may be looting some of these, you know, um, memorabilia that are in the uh, in the churches or the mosque and, you know, are like that Hobby Lobby issue that happened uh, a few months ago. I don't know if you heard about that. They were in trouble, you know, taking all these uh, Iraqi and yeah. uh, antiquities. So she's one of those that actually tries to recover them. And then we're going to also have an anthropology professor, um, I believe from Loyola. Uh, so it's, it's, that's going to be a great, great discussion. So, um, but it sounds like it's 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 more a kind of um, recovering rather than preventing. I, I I don't know in war if you you are able to you know um, how how do you, how do you stop that how do you, how do you protect a monument if if they're going to target it I think it's probably maybe more of a preemptive you know maybe trying to identify what could be vulnerable and then you know start documenting and and, and getting that you know in the blueprints or getting using the technology so that it is documented uh, in case something mm -hmm. would happen I think they're trying to be more you know proactive. Mm. Um, than they have been in years. So. All right. Um, okay. So how about the? Uh, I'm looking at your, the pictures of your, uh, uh, of the films, and you have one here: Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. I presume that's about Jane Jacobs. Yes, it is about Jane Jacobs, and uh, this documents her battle with Robert Moses. You know. Uh, so Robert Moses was basically trying to take down all the old and put up a bunch of new, and he's the kind of guy that we in New Orleans don't like. Um, or at least many of us, not everybody. And, um, in fact, he was the one who, as I understand it, proposed the Riverfront Expressway that was uh, very unpopular here and um, was ultimately defeated by citizen action, such as the kind of thing that she advocated for. Exactly. And, I, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised that he was the one at, at head of that. But um, it, it goes to her battle of trying to save Greenwich Village from the expressway. Uh, it's a very strong film. Uh, I learned a lot about her, even though I knew quite a bit. I've read Death and Life of American Cities, which I think she's working on throughout the documentary. Uh, I did not know she was one of our first ever architectural writers as a woman. Uh, I didn't know that she did that first in her early 20s. And self-trained, self-taught. Um, and uh, we are going to be doing a um, kind of a women's uh, power afternoon. We're going to start with an Eileen Gray film. 
who is a uh, British designer and architect, early 20th century. And that's at 2 o'clock. That's Gray Matters on Saturday. Which and uh, Saturday, Saturday, is that the 26th? Yeah, Saturday 26th. And then in between Gray Matters and Citizen Jane Battle of the City, we're going to do a happy hour at the Broad Theater's bar from 3.30 to 4.30 uh, in conjunction with the Women and Architects chapter here. And uh, and then we'll have Citizen Jane Battle of the City. So I'm excited about that. When, I, when I'm when i putting together the lineup, and we are under the umbrella of ADFF, which is, started in New York, Nine years ago now, we're under their umbrella, but I, we do carefully That's craft. Architecture and Design Film Festival. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We do carefully craft our lineup, and I always look at, you know, making sure we have a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, do we have urban planning? Do we have social impact design? Do we have our modern architects, like we have Aero Saarinen, the architect who saw the future? And I have a very exciting announcement that we uh, just secured his son, Eric Saarinen, who is the director of photography for the film and also stars in the film, and he'll be coming um, for our festival now. And that'll be Saturday at 7, the premiere of that film at the Broad Theater. And then we'll do a Q&A with Eric, and maybe we'll do a little, you know, uh, post uh, reception with him mm-hmm. uh, afterwards. That's so that'll great. be yeah, that'll be yeah. really nice. Okay, and um, oh, another one, Columbus. I should talk about okay. uh, Columbus, uh, Columbus, Indiana. I don't know if you've ever heard of Columbus, Indiana. Uh, no. I'm a former Midwestern Columbus, Ohio. girl. Right, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Former Midwestern girl, so I, I am familiar. And I went to Columbus, Indiana about ten years ago because um, it was coined one of the ten top cities for architecture and and, and it, this is a little town 40 some thousand people Wait, and is it near indianapolis it or? is about two and a half three hour drive yet south, south. of of indianapolis it's a southern part of the state around there oh working you, in a political campaign but i don't remember anything about Columbus. well it's a uh, the architecture is definitely very interesting it's kind of frank lloyd Wrightian. yes and uh here is one of the largest collections they said mid-century architecture uh in columbus indiana and what happened which i find fascinating and the film is lovely the film's actually our only narrative film only you know uh, with actors, not a documentary like like most of ours are. It's getting great uh, acclaim in uh, just the New York Times and also uh, Rolling Stone because um, the backdrop is all this mid-century beautiful architecture. The film is a gorgeous film. It's only going to be shown once at 9.15 on Friday. It, you really should, should see the film. It's gorgeous. Um, and what happened is and in Columbus, Indiana in the, I want to say, 50s, the CEO at the time of Cummins' um, engine, they build diesel engines, he had the foresight to see that if he wanted to attract the top engineers to come to this little town in Columbus, Indiana, that he was going to have to make it a community that was strong as a community in both architecture and in art and, you know, a place for people that want to come there. And so Cummins' engine um, commissioned uh, some of our great architects of uh, mid-century architects. So Elio wow. e- and Ario Saarinen have buildings there, public buildings. Um, Harry Weiss does. Uh, I am Pei. Uh, I mean, some of our greats are, are there, and it's it's so surprising. So uh, now they have over 60 buildings in in that time period. Wow. And and also what it did when what I found when we were there is that it raise the bar on everything new being built. You know, they have an architectural commission, and because they have such a, you know, a collection of this wonderful architecture, 
Um, it's raised the bar for, for every new project uh, from, from then on. So it's really a, it's a really a neat uh, documentary. I'm excited to bring this here as as a former Midwestern to showcase. You know, it's not Chicago, which usually people think of as architecture, um, not New York or L.A. That the, in the small town of 40,000, that there can be a great collection. So it's amazing. Yes, yeah. yeah. So see that film. Put that on your list. And it, and it really is what what I what I like about it is that um, a, a, an entity, in this case a corporation decided that um, it was going to be deliberate about um, really doing something with the architecture of that city and just making it happen. It's a great example of how, uh, even though that's corporate, it's really kind of citizen action to make things happen. And speaking of citizen action, you've got here citizen architect Samuel Mockby and the Spirit of the Rural South. This is a little closer to home. Yes. Uh, this is in a small town, um, I want to say Hale, uh, Hale County, uh, Alabama. And uh, I also look that we bring, you know, I like to bring films that are, that are touching, you know, in our neighboring uh, states as well. And this is, to me, you know, um, a classic architecture film. But I found in my little surveys with uh, the architecture community here and the public, a lot of people haven't seen it. And it's an important film because uh, Samuel Mockby was a professor at Auburn. And very early on, again, uh, I, I had the foresight of social impact design and where his design would really matter and taught his students. Um, they, they set up a shop called Real Studio in Hale County, Alabama, and the students were um, the head architects, and they built uh, housing. For and it was affordable housing. So right, here extremely we are. affordable. We're faced with an affordable housing crisis in New Orleans, and I, I don't think that we're really applying as much creativity to that issue as we could. And we do have a lot of architects and architecture students in town. We do, we do. Um, it, so I, that's what I like about the film, and we're also going to do a panel discussion after on community and social impact design uh, with Concordia uh, Architecture and Planning, um, someone from the Small Center at Tulane, um, Robert uh, Brooks, who is a Louisiana Tech uh, professor who's doing something very similar uh, up in uh, northern part of Louisiana uh, with a med camps. Um, he designed a med camps facility for um, handicapped kids to go to camp. Uh, so very along that line, but I hope it will be inspiration as well. So I'm getting the uh, musical signal here that our time is about up. But um, uh, once again, it's the Architecture and Design Film Festival. August 24th through 27th. 27th is my birthday, so I'll try to be Happy sure early to birthday. be out there. And um, it is going to be at the Broad Theater. And, you know, I went last year, y'all. Some of this may sound a little esoteric, but I can't tell you how much fun it is. It really is and I saw you a there. lot yes. of really beautiful ideas for things that you can do in your own home, in your own neighborhood. And um, I just highly recommend this festival. It's, Thank it's you. It's a great thing that Thank it's you, being Jean. done. Thank you, for Thank having you me. Thank you for bringing it to us. ADFF.com, and you can go to ADFF NOLA at the header at the top, and you can find all the information. ADFF.com. A-D as in David. F-F.com. Thank you very much for having me again. All Good right. to see you. Okay, y'all. Uh, that's it for this week. Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations, and we'll visit again next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>